This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. We continue our Lenten journey this Sunday with Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange, who is working us through the power of the love of God. And our subject today is the redemptive power of Christ. This is, of, I think, a something we should focus on as traditional Catholics, because we tend to shy away from the mercy of God and redemption and these other things that the powers that should not be in Rome really love to focus on to the exclusion of the justice of God. And there's a very real danger in our overcorrecting of it. So let's actually learn from one of the great teachers from the 20th century about the redemptive power of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. This is the love I mean, not our love for God, but God's love for us when he sent his son to be the sacrifice that takes our sins away. See 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. The power that must support us is the redemptive action of Christ. This is the love I mean, not our love for God, but God's love for us when he sent his son to be the sacrifice that takes our sins away. Having reflected on the goal of the spiritual life, configuration to the word in the light of glory, we considered what is essentially opposed to this progress. It can always threaten and compromise it. Sin. Now we will see what that power is by which we can triumph over both sin and the inclination to evil. That is the fruit of sin. That power with which we can raise ourselves above human limitations and attain the divine end to which divine providence and mercy have destined us. The power upon which rests the spiritual life of all souls striving to be freed from evil and raised up to God is the redemptive action of Christ. His ever active and efficacious love directed to the Father and to us. He himself told us, as a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself, but must remain part of the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches can live only if they are united to the vine and receive the sap from it. Come to me, all you who labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. That is, burdened under the weight of your faults and sufferings. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all men to myself." Life, teaches, life itself teaches us that the strength of a soul in the midst of trial and temptations comes from its practical and experiential consciousness of the infinite value of redemption, of the omnipotent efficacy of Christ's death on the cross. In the confessional, one day a poor woman was explaining to the priest the moral anguish in which she found herself. She was abandoned by her husband, her sons, and by all. She was seriously calumniated by those on whom she should have been able to rely. She was sick and tormented by hunger. The priest, seeing that he was dealing with a true Christian, said to her directly, Our Lord suffered more than you for love of you. That poor woman with full conviction exclaimed, That's true, it's really true. She again found her strength and was able to continue on her way. According to the definition of the church, the redemptive act of Christ has an infinite value and efficacy. It makes satisfaction for any guilt whatsoever, repairs fully any offense against God, even though its gravity is infinite, it satisfies for all the sins of men and still more. It compensates for all the rebellions against God, all the apostasies, all the acts of despair and presumption, all the feelings of hatred and of all kinds of crime. It merits all graces for even the most degraded souls, provided they are not stubbornly fixed in evil. It is impossible to think of a limit to the efficacy of the redemptive act. 
The redemptive omnipotence of the act of Christ who immolated himself upon the cross derives from the fact that it is a perfect act of charity performed by a divine person, the perfect act of an incarnate word. It is a supernatural act of charity towards God which makes him forget all offenses. Such an act of charity performed by the incarnate word attains, by reason of the divine personality of the word, an infinite efficacy to make satisfaction, to expiate, and to merit. The Catechism teaches this doctrine to children, but do we ourselves comprehend it? Has it become for us a doctrine of life and everyday experience? It is easy to say that the act of charity of Christ attains by reason of the divine personality in an infinite value and efficacy. But do we seek to understand fully in our meditation and prayer this simple phrase that children know by memory, yet whose profound meaning surpasses the understanding of angels? The personality of the incarnate word. What do these words mean? Many errors in the meaning of this word, personality, circulate throughout the world. Today, many talk in a pompous way about the development of their personality, but in reality, they are developing only some natural gifts that permit them to be distinguished from other persons, gifts which make their pride grow daily. They believe that to practice renunciation in the so-called passive virtues of humility, obedience, patience, and meekness, that is, to follow Christian morality in its totality, constitutes the annihilation of one's personality. They have never seriously meditated in prayer on what constitutes the true worth of personality, and the fact that it realizes its highest development in our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall dwell a bit on this thought and strive to raise ourselves up gradually from the ordinary display of personality to manifestations of the personality of Jesus. This is the personality which had in itself the total explanation of its redemptive power. Personality is what distinguishes man from inferior beings such as animals, plants, and stones. In us, personality is the principle of our reason and liberty, a principle that assures us independence with respect to the material world, and thanks to which we shall be able to subsist after the disintegration of our body. It is a principle that permits us to act with autonomy and freedom in our present state, enable us to resist attraction of merely sensible goods according to the judgment of our intelligence and the choice of our freedom. Although all men are persons, they do not thereby have an equal personality. Many live almost exclusively under the tyranny of their senses and passions without managing to rise above the level of animal life. Their judgments and actions are not determined by their own special conviction. Rather, they accept without examination the ideas of their surroundings, their newspapers, their political party. While they refuse in full conscience to obey their legitimate superiors, they passively subject themselves to the prejudices of a group, and they follow themselves to be enticed by the most fantastic promises. They fail to escape the attraction of the moment, and, having lost control of themselves, permit themselves to be urged on like an animal, consequently falling into the power of the first one to approach them. This is the lowest level of personality. Personality can be gradually elevated as the activity of our spirit, and will free itself from the purely sensible life. This can be accomplished in the measure that we learn to control the influences exercised upon us instead of passively submitting to them. Finally, personality can be elevated insofar as we learn to decide and choose with full freedom, instead of responding instinctively to the attraction that solicits us. In this development of personality, however, there lies a grave danger. Since personality is measured by the independence of the being who acts, some believe that the highest development of personality consists in absolute independence. They consider this independence not only in relation to the lower levels of reality, to which we must never allow ourselves to be in servitude, but also in relation to our superiors and God himself. The true names for this false personality are insubordination, rebellion, unbelief, and atheism. It derives essentially from pride and is found fully realized in the devil. 
The mystery of the Incarnation teaches us, on the contrary, that the human personality develops in the measure that the soul, elevating itself above the merely sensible world, places itself in closer dependence on what constitutes the true life of the Spirit. That means closer independence on truth and grace, and in the ultimate analysis, on God. While the great philosopher scarcely caught a glimpse of this, the saints truly grasped the way to the full development of our personality. It consists in losing in some way our own personality in the personality of God, who alone possesses personality in the perfect sense of the word. He alone is absolutely independent in being and actions. That is, he alone is independent of all creation. Hence, the saints at the level of knowledge and love made strenuous efforts to substitute the personality of God for their own, to die to themselves so that God might reign in them. They were armed with a holy hatred of their own ego. They sought to make God the principle of their actions, no longer acting according to the rules of the world or their own limited judgment, but according to God's ideas and rules as received through faith. They sought to to substitute the divine will for their own, and to act no longer for themselves but for God, loving him not as themselves but infinitely more than themselves, and more than any other thing whatsoever. They understood that God had to become for them another ego more intimate than their own. They had to realize that God was more them than they themselves, because he is predominantly being. Therefore, they made strong efforts to renounce their personality and every attitude of independence before God. They sought to make of themselves something divine. Consequently, they developed the most forceful personality conceivable. They obtained in some way what God possesses by nature, namely independence from every created thing, not only in the corporeal world, but also in the world of intelligence. The saints have their empire, their glory, their victory, their splendor, and they have no need of carnal or spiritual splendors. Knowledge of human science adds nothing to their perfection in the supernatural order. Being a genius in mathematics adds nothing to a saint. They are seen by God and the angels, not by men and inquiring spirits. God is sufficient for them. The saint, once he has come to substitute in some measure the personality of God for his own, can exclaim with St. Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. I live now not with my own life, but with the life of Christ who lives in me. Is it he then who lives henceforth, or is it God who lives in him? In the order of the operations of knowing and loving the saint has substituted, as it were, the divine ego for his own ego, but in the order of being his ego remains distinct from God. In this respect, Christ, the man-god, appears as an unreachable goal to which sanctity still strives to draw near. In him it is no longer only in the order of knowledge and love that the human ego makes room for a divine person, but also in the order of being itself, the root of operations. One must properly say of Jesus that he has absolutely no human personality, but exists and subsists entirely in the power of the very personality of the word, which he constitutes one unique being. This, then, is the ultimate reason for this prodigious personality of whom history has never given another example, and never will. Here it is the ultimate reason for the infinite majesty of this unique and exceptional ego that belongs to Christ. The Father and I are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me, all you who labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. I shall pour new strength into your weary souls, and I shall raise up your dead souls. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. Let the man come and drink who believes in me, as scripture says, from his breast shall flow fountains of living water. Everyone who believes has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. This ego of Christ is the ego of the incarnate word. Just as in us the soul and the body belong to the same person, so in him the humanity and the divinity belong to the same person, that of the word. 
What then will be the value of an act of charity of Christ if already an act of charity performed by the most humble Christian is superior to the intuitions of a genius, or if an act of charity performed by the saints produces such great wonders in the souls of those around them? What will be the value of an act of charity of Christ, an act of the human will that belongs to the word? The smallest act of charity of Christ is sufficient to redeem humanity and repair all rebellions because the smallest meritorious act of the word has an infinite value. We know what this act of charity of Jesus was. It is already true that a man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. But our Lord has given his life for his enemies and for those of his father. At Gethsemane, he saw all the past and future sins, including those of, his, would be, of those who would end him. He saw his abandonment by his own followers, the persecutions, the apostasies, and the hatreds. He saw the infinite gravity of the offense to God. In his human soul, he suffered for all the evil and all the insults made to God, his Father, in, pro in proportion to his love for him and for us. He suffered in the way an older brother suffers when he sees his father offended by younger brothers, whom the Father had always tried to lead to the good. Jesus took upon himself the responsibility for all the sins of men, and he began to suffer for them as if it had been he who had committed them, as if he were impious, rebellious, frenzied, cowardly, ungrateful, and sacrilegious. He felt the divine anger and divine curse weigh on his soul, while hell with the supreme fury broke loose against him. The horror of evil and all vices together seemed for an instant to suffocate him. A cry burst from his lips on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his darkness, in his abandonment, our Lord performed his greatest act of love. In the midst of his anguish, he loved his Father above everything, and he loved us even to the giving of his life for our salvation, only grieving that a greater number were not saved. This act of love makes abundant satisfaction for all hatreds. The obedience that involves comp that involves compensates for all rebellions in the eyes of God. The humiliations of the passion redeem all acts of pride. The gentleness of him crucified repairs all acts of anger, and his sufferings pay for all sensuality. This act of charity, the incarnate word, has saved the world. This act can still save us today and sustain all souls. Christ, as we know, having been raised from the dead, will never die again, since he is living forever to intercede for all who come to God through him. His act of love continues to defend us against all the seductions of the world and the devil. Who can doubt the infinite efficacy of the love of Christ and his omnipotence against evil? With God on our side, who can be against us? Nothing, therefore, can come between us and the love of Christ, even if we are troubled or worried or being persecuted or lacking food or clothes or being threatened or even attacked. For I am certain of this, neither death nor life nor angel nor prince, nothing that exists, nothing still to come, not any power or height or depth nor any created thing can ever come between us and the love of God made visible in Christ Jesus our Lord. This redemptive work of Christ eagerly awaits being poured out abundantly over us. Christ is the head of humanity, and the life of grace flows from him into mankind in the same way as in the human body the stimulus of the nerves is transmitted from the head to the members, and in the tree the sap flows from the trunk into the branches. The soul united to Christ through faith and charity form, in fact, a body that is aptly called the mystical body of Christ. It is a reality more genuine than the human body. Just as the life of the Spirit is greater and more real than the life of the senses, which is, as it were, only a shadow of the former, so in its turn and to a greater extent, the supernatural life is more true and more real than the human body, or even the natural life of the pure Spirit. The bond that unites the members of the mystical body to one another and to Jesus Christ are consequently the supernatural bonds of a reality, so eminent that only God can accomplish it and completely understand it.
The principal act of the mystical body of the Lord is the oblation of the sacrifice of the Mass. The priest offers the sacrifice in the name of the faithful, but it is principally Christ who offers himself through the priest. It is always the same and unique oblation of the sacrifice of the cross that is repeated in unbloody form, an act ever alive in the heart of Christ, who does not cease interceding and offering himself to his Father for us. I would even say under this aspect that Christ continues to suffer for us, as the devotion to the Sacred Heart says, to suffer in his members and in his saints, as a mother suffers in her son whom she sees in pain. The sacrifice of the Son continues, then, in a mysterious but real way, in the sacrifice of the Mass, and it is this act of oblation of the Son to his Father that sustains the world. Life is poured out into the mystical body by means of the sacraments, by means of absolution that raises the dead members to life, through the Eucharist that conserves the life of grace and renews the fervor that venial sin has weakened, and finally, by means of all the interior inspirations and all the actual graces with which the Lord favors us. It is a fountain of divine life that flows from him to us, streaming forth into everlasting life. How many times have we noticed this power of Christ in our individual lives, through absolution and communion, and in the social life of the church, always rising from the worst persecutions, younger and stronger? Hence, we should have confidence in this redemptive power of Christ on which the whole supernatural life must be founded. We should listen to his invitation, Come to me and I will give you rest. In baptism I gave you a pure and shining soul. He seems to say to us, And see how spoiled in the, is the one you have. But come to me and I shall refashion it. Come to me, all you who have darkened your intelligence and lost sight of the ideal, and I shall enlighten you. Come to me, you who have a conscience that has gone astray, and I shall set it straight. Come to me, you who have a weak will, and I shall strengthen it for you. And you who have a stubborn heart, come and I shall teach it anew the joy and love of God. Jesus Christ has the power to lead us to our ultimate end, and he alone can configure us to the word of God, because he is the word. Knowing our sins, he wishes not only to heal us, but through his blood to raise us up higher. However great the number of sins committed, grace was even greater. In his revelations to St. Margaret Mary, he laments the coldness of some souls consecrated to him. We should permit him to work in us, allow him to assimilate us to himself, and ask him to teach us in a practical way to cooperate with his action and to travel the way that he himself has outlined for us. And that was Reginald, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, one of the great minds and teachers of the 20th century, on the redemptive power of Christ. How we must allow Christ to work in us through plenty of citations to sacred scripture. I am very curious what you have to say about that. You find that challenge, do you find that passage challenging to our sort of assumptions about God? Do you see what I meant when I at the beginning when I said we have this tendency to sometimes overcorrect because of these endless talk of mercy coming from Rome, that we should be on our guard against that inclination? Let me know what you have to say about this in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.